Well, we're in a new book today, James chapter 1, and Matt is all excited that I'm teaching James, because James is one of those books that if you teach the grace message, uh, it's hard to teach James, because it comes across as one of those books that's full of the law. So today... I want to make sure that uh, I give you a good, good background of the letter of James before. You have to know what's, what's happened here. Some people will say that uh, the letter of James was written as the first book of the New Testament. Uh, I've placed it in our teaching order after the, the first missionary journey, and Paul has written his letter to Galatians. The letter could have been written anywhere from 40 A.D. to, uh, well, he died, he was martyred in 62 A.D., so it really could have been written in, in any one of those years, but we have a sense that it was during the time of the Jerusalem Council, and there was so much stuff going on in history. I'll show you a, a, a picture of the New Testament books. I don't know if you can see that, but uh, we did this a few years ago. If you didn't know, the New Testament books are not in chronological order. So uh, we've, we're going through Acts. Acts is kind of the history book of the whole New Testament after the Gospels, after the Gospels, after the resurrection and ascension. Uh, so then Paul goes on his first missionary journey. We've discussed that in Acts, and then he's written his letter to Galatians, so now we're to James. You can see that on Levener.com, that thing right there, because I think it's pretty informative as you study the Word of God. But let's talk about the history of what's actually happen, happening in that region at this point that gets you to where James has to write this letter. There's crisis going on in the, let's say, Jewish church, that would be the ones that believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And at this point, they've pretty much been dispersed. They've been dispersed, really, over their history. The Israelites, the Jews, have been moved around and moved around and moved around. They're all over Babylon and, and every place else. So uh, now they've kind of come back to Israel during this period of time, and they've come to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So you've got those that are the Gentiles living in the area. You've got those that are the Jews that don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And then you've got the Jewish believers that believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And these believers that believe Jesus is the Messiah are being persecuted. They're going through all sorts of trials, and what James does here is he writes this letter for those that are in crisis. Today, you would read the letter, and you would make it your individual crisis. It would speak to you about going through your own personal crisis. But as James wrote this letter, he really wrote it to the church in general because they were going through crisis as a church. They've been particularly oppressed by uh, the affluent at this point. There's limited agriculture, 
land, and so they can't really support this growing population that's happened in Israel. So they're deprived of land, and the Jewish believers are pretty much forced to become hired laborers. And then they're controlled by the affluent, and they deal with a, a bunch of oppression. The rich landowners are even robbing some of the Christians of their land at this point. Uh, some are being hauled into court by the wealthy men, and uh, in that court scene, they're scorned for their faith, their faith in Jesus Christ, because they're going against what the Jews believe. And at the same time, uh, the, there's still Hellenistic materials that are coming in. Some of the Christians are getting these materials, and they begin to sell these materials to try to make wealth, and then those materials get stolen. There's all sorts of things that are happening. And of course, at this point, Paul has come in and he's teaching to the Gentiles. He's teaching to the Gentiles and literally what Paul has taught, what we have read in the letter to Galatians, is now being distorted. They're separating, saying Paul says that uh, we don't have to do good works because salvation comes by faith alone. So if we don't have to do good works, then we can just do whatever we want. You see how this gets distorted. It's the same way if you teach the grace message today uh, to people, there's always this fear. There's this fear that, hey, if they uh, buy into this grace thing, then they're going to say they can go out and do whatever they want, and then it's going to cheapen the word of God, and da 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 So then we change, we kind of protect that grace message so we can control their behavior. But the truth is, we're not responsible for that. I'm not responsible for your behavior. I'm just responsible for teaching you the Word of God. And he's responsible, just as like Scott said, there's a spirit inside of you that will guide you and direct you. So now all these rumors are going around what Paul's taught. It's a little distorted. There needs to be some clarification going on because... Things are just in chaos there. And uh, people are, some of the worldly people are ambitious about being teachers. There's a bunch of sickness going on. It's like, you're familiar with sickness, right? It's all we're hearing about in the news today is this sickness with the coronavirus. The same thing is going on there. There's a lot of sickness. So James decides, hey, you know what? I'm going to sit down as a leader of the church in Jerusalem, and I'm going to pin a letter to the believers, the Jewish believers that believe that Jesus is Messiah, to encourage them in their faith. So we get to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 says, verse 1, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let, let's, let's pause there for a second because, first of all, we're asking who this James person is. You've got James, the son of Zebedee, right? Who was also the brother of John, one of the disciples that Jesus picked out in Matthew chapter 4. He was a fisherman. James was the first of the disciples to give his life for Christ. He was actually killed by Herod in 44 AD, so the likelihood of it being James, the son of Zebedee, that wrote this letter is is not really accepted. Then there's James, 
the son of Alphaeus. He was another one of the disciples that was mentioned in Matthew, but there's very little that is known about this disciple. Matthew, uh, also known as Levi, is identified as the son of Alphaeus, and so these two men probably were brothers. But again, we don't believe it's this James that wrote this letter. There's another James. James, the father of Judas, the disciple. You realize there were two disciples named Judas, Judas Iscariot, and then Judas, who was particularly named the son of James because they wanted to make sure that everybody differentiated him from Judas Iscariot. So he was called Judas, the son of James. There's hardly anything mentioned about Judas's dad, James, in the scripture, so most likely this isn't that James either. And then we get to this. James, the brother of our Lord. Uh, this one seems to be the most likely candidate to author this letter. He doesn't identify himself in this way. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He humbly calls himself a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What qualifies James right here to write such a letter is not his physical relationship with Jesus, but his spiritual relationship with Jesus. That's kind of a big deal because I think most people would go, yeah, Jesus is my brother. Like, like you, you realize that James was kind of the half-brother of Jesus. They had the same mom, Mary, but they had two different fathers. James's father was Joseph, but Jesus' father was God because he was born of the Virgin Mary. So now we pretty much know we would affirm, most theologians affirm that it was James, the brother of Jesus, that is actually the one that penned this letter. And here's the interesting things about James is that uh, Jesus had not only James as a brother, but he also had brothers and sisters. He, you can look in Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 and 56, and Mark 6, 3, and see that he had other siblings. The crazy thing is, is that James didn't believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry as the Messiah. Like, literally, he and his siblings thought Jesus was crazy. Your own brother doesn't believe that you're the son of God. That, I mean, get this. Mary had to know that Jesus was born from God, right? Mary had to know this, right? Because she hadn't had sex before. And so growing up, Jesus had to have been known as, well, Joseph's not my father. That's kind of strange, right? Why wouldn't your siblings buy into this? Mom is even kind of worried about her son. But then what affected James's belief? We know that uh, our James was there in the upper room right before Jesus died. He's hearing all these things. I'm going to go and I'm going to give my life. I want you to remember me, da-da-da-da-da. And so James is there with his brother, but what affected his change from his unbelief to his faith? You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 7, and it indicates that Jesus appeared 
to James after his resurrection. It wasn't until after his resurrection that James, his brother, believed that Jesus was the Son of God and the Messiah. That's crazy to think about. So now we believe that this letter is attributed to James, the half-brother of Jesus. Mark chapter 6, verse 3 says, Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. There's where in the scripture we see he had siblings. Galatians 1.19 says, But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Remember this? This was Paul writing this letter to the church at Galatia, and he's like, I went back to Jerusalem, and the only person that I saw when I got there was James, the brother of Jesus, and he was the leader. He was the main dude in Jerusalem. So therefore, I'm convinced that this letter is written by Jesus' brother, James. Don't forget this now. James had a different mission than Paul did. Even though Paul went back to Jerusalem, Paul's whole deal was that he was called as a missionary to the Gentiles. Those would be the non-Jewish people, that he would tell the people, hey, you're a part of this. Jesus included you in this. Jesus wants you to be a child of God. Da, 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 da. James, on the other hand, his whole ministry is staying right there with the Jews that have been dispersed yet have recollected in Israel. And he's trying to convince the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been looking for all these years. So they've really got two different missions that we've kind of come through in Acts. So uh, by asking uh, Paul's, Paul to take his, or, or Paul actually to take James' side in this, Paul goes to Jerusalem and says, hey, James, uh, here's what I'm teaching. This is what Jesus has told me to teach the Gentiles. He really looks for affirmation from James. And here's what we pulled from, from Galatians and actually Acts so far, is there's been no controversy between James and Paul. Even though they're teaching two different groups of people, the Gentiles and the Jews, there's no conflict here. They are on the same page. Remember, the conflict was between Paul and Peter. When Peter was no longer eating with the Gentiles, Paul called him out on that. And even then, even though there was conflict there, I believe that they came out on the same page. Paul was always coming out on the same page of teaching grace along with James and those who were strong in their Jewish faith back in Jerusalem. Now think about it for a second. If you grew up memorizing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, some of you haven't even memorized the names of those five books. <laughs> But literally, if you grew up memorizing what they call the Torah, the Jews grew up and they knew all 50 chapters and all the biblical stories of Genesis. They knew the story of the Exodus and how Moses led the Jews out of Egypt and how he got the Ten Commandments. They knew all 613 laws in Leviticus that was given to the Levitical priests. 
They knew all these stories, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they had committed their life to it by living the law. And then Jesus comes along, and he teaches the Torah. Not only does he teach the Torah, but he teaches the law. And he teaches the law to this magnification that it's impossible for them to do. And at the very end, he's like, I'm going to the cross, and I've lived out this law perfectly for you. I'm going to be your sacrifice. And I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to raise again, and I'm going to go sit at the right hand of the Father, and we're going to send a third part of the Trinity to you that would be a Holy Spirit. He's going to come inside of you, and he's going to live inside of you, and he's going to to live your life for you as long as you let him. Big deal there. As long as you let him. So now there's this spirit that lives inside of us that we have given a free will and a free choice to allow him to live his life for us. This is the message that he is teaching, that Paul's teaching. Now all of a sudden, the whole thing changed. Everything that you've learned, everything that you've lived has changed. Wait, you're telling me that I've learned the Torah, I've spent days studying this thing, and the law, and the Ten Commandments, and and you're going to change the game on me? Like, that's a huge investment. I literally, I went to Oklahoma Baptist University and got a bachelor's degree in religion. I went to seminary, got a master's degree in religion. I came and taught, and uh, Keith, we went to breakfast, and he began to challenge me on it, what I was teaching. I was really teaching a form of the law, because that's what I had been taught. It's what I grew up understanding. Look, I had the whole Bible, and I was taught the whole Bible, but there was something that happened right there that changed everything. Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, he rose again, and a spirit came and lived inside of me. I was no longer under the law, now I'm under the law of Christ. Christ lives in me, a spirit lives in me, and I live, live my life like that. And I literally came to the point where everything that I had learned in Sunday school from Mr. Thompson in seventh grade at First Baptist Church, Tulsa, Oklahoma, everything I had learned at OBU, Oklahoma Baptist University, everything I had learned at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, it all changed. It all changed. And you know, I am still to this day unpacking what I've learned. I have to like, every time I read my Bible, I have to rethink what I once grew up understanding. Now, all of a sudden, it's changed. It's changed, and I have to rethink how to teach this thing in in a different mindset. Imagine if you're a Jew. Imagine if you're a Jew, and you've grown up under the law, and now, all of a sudden, you've got to change. (laughs) that's not easy. So, why the difficulty with James? Because this is what I'm talking about. 
it's difficult for James to do this total conversion from what he once knew to this whole grace message. For Paul, remember, he was walking down, he was walking down the, the road to Damascus and all of a sudden he was blinded and everything was downloaded to him and it was like, man, that change happened real quick. This was the, the Jew of all Jews, the guy that knew the law better than anybody, but the Lord did something in him. Well, I believe he did something in James, but it wasn't as drastic as it was with Paul. All right, let's get into this. James chapter 1, a servant of God and Lord Jesus Christ. I, I love that he says a servant because this is really the attitude. And I believe that service distinguishes between uh, biblical leadership. There's no contradiction between service and leadership. If you want to be a, a good leader, you're probably going to have to be a servant. And so he describes himself more as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. The Jews, you go, let's go back. They, 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 got, uh, they got dispersed so many times. But really, the last time was around 771 when the Babylonians came in and actually lived in the land. And so they've been dispersed all over the place. Even today, you can go back, uh, you, go, you, you study the Holocaust, and you see that, that Jews died all over the world, right? They've been dispersed since 771 B.C. So when he writes this, he's, he's writing to the 12 tribes, those 12 tribes aren't around. They're already like broken up. So who's he referring to? Maybe the 12 tribes that are coming back. Maybe he's referring to the church. Maybe he's referring to the history that he's holding on to. Remember. Acts, 1, Acts 8 verses 1-3 says this. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, who eventually becomes Paul, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house and drag off men and women and put them in prison. This is part of that disbursement that happened. Even Paul, Saul was a part of that. But eventually, he came to a conversion experience. So there are Christian Jews that are scattered all over Rome. They've got needs and problems. And now James is going to deal with them. Verse 2, it says this. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you're experiencing various trials. <laughs> Anybody in here experiencing various trials right now? Yeah, I see you. Uh, he's not saying, he's not saying take joy in the trials. He's saying live out of the joy in the midst of your trials. Like, if you totally believe what I've just said to you up here, uh, I'll tell you right now, just don't believe what I say. Go, go here and, and read the word and see if I'm telling you the truth. 
But if you, if you believe that, if you believe that, then that spirit that lives in you, here's what he does. He produces things in you. He does it, not you. For the fruit of the spirit is love, joy. The spirit in you is producing joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. In other words, you've got the spirit, you don't need the law. Because the spirit will produce these things in you. So now he's produced joy in you. John 16.33 pretty much says the trials are coming. I, I get that you're Christians, that Jesus lives in you, and that you're God's children, and you're heirs to the throne, and... You have all these things, but Jesus says in 1633, I have told you these things so that you, that in me, you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. That verse right there probably came uh, alive to me more than ever. I got card after card. Brandon, you sent me a card when my mother died. And it had that verse on there, John 16, 33. And the deal was, it says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Whose peace is it? It's not my peace. It's his peace. If it's my peace and I'm trying to generate peace, there's not going to be enough. So I have to go a little bit higher than that, and I have to look at him for his peace. Look, I said to you, uh, I think last week when Ross was here, uh, the news, there's a fight that's going on, and that fight's going to be going on the rest of the days that we're in our flesh. That fight is not here in my heart. That fight is right here in my head. James, again, is not saying that you need to be joyous about the trials, but be joyous in the trials. You have to know what's going on. If we, look, if you value comfort more than you value character, then those trials are going to get the best of you. If we value the material or the physical more than the spiritual, there's no way you're going to be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, then trials are going to make you bitter and not better. And when you become bitter, no one wants to be around you. And then you become isolated. And you go into a dark, dark place. You've got trials. I look, I see, I see the trials in the room right here. I see them. They're big to you. But we also, watch this, hang on, here we go, verse 3. Because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 5, and not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I have all that right here in me because the Holy Spirit was given to me. That hope is important. Ross sang about it last week. I thought it was pretty awesome. He said, someday we won't have hope because we won't need hope. We're going to be with Jesus. 
But until then, we have hope right now. In verse 4, it says, And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. What does it mean to be mature is that you've surrendered your own selfish flesh to pursue the Spirit. That's what he's saying. So that you may be mature and complete. It's often translated as perfect, so that you may become perfect in your behavior. I believe that uh, God wants us to make us patient. Let endurance have its full effect. Can you wait? Can you outlast it? God wants to make us patient because that's the key to all the blessings. Be patient. The little child that doesn't learn patience probably won't learn much of anything else. When a believer learns to wait on the Lord, I believe God is going to do great things for him. Abraham, remember, ran ahead of the Lord and he married Hagar. You know how that thing turned out. Moses ran ahead of God, and he ended up murdering somebody. You know how that thing turned out. Peter almost killed a man in his impatience there right before Jesus was to die. Patience. In the midst of, watch this, in the midst of your trials and crisis, I've had to learn to have patience with you. In dealing with crisis, uh, I've discovered that urgency isn't always the answer. Uh, one, because I'm not the answer to your problem. <laughs> if I am, you're, you're really in trouble. Uh, I may be able to help you with a solution, but I'm, I'm never the answer to your problem. You can call me, but know your faith is being tested and you will grow in maturity and wisdom through your patience to be able to endure. Endurance eventually leads to hope. James is writing this letter. We've only gotten to the first four verses, but he's looking at a group of believers that are struggling. How do I feed them? How do I encourage them? How do I lead them to this hope? Hold fast. Hold fast. Jesus, I pray um, somewhat with a heavy heart because I sit here and, uh, as a pastor, as a shepherd. I know the issues. I see the issues that are uh, out here. And there's some uh, heavy-duty stuff. So, um, I pray for endurance. Some have been in the battle for a long time, and they can't even see the light at the end of the tunnel right now. I pray that uh, the suffering that you've declared is going to happen will allow us to trust you even more. I pray that you would 
begin to open your word even more, that we can trust your word, that we can see it, that uh, it's revealed to us. And I just pray for my friends today. I pray peace for them. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.